Hi, you've reached the reached like this is a voicemail. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> All right, let's do that again. Probably a good paper one day. Um you're listening to the Mido podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Megan. And our guest today is her name is Stacy. Stacy, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Stacy. I'm I currently live in Pennsylvania. Uh, I am an adult with Mido and also happen to be a physician. So. Which is exciting. We don't really get to talk to too many adults that have Mido, especially none that are physicians. Um, yeah. So thank you for joining us today. Um, could you maybe get started in telling us how your Mito journey sort of began? Oh, I was 27 at the time, I think. Um, I was in residency and I'm an OBGYN, so I would have to get up really early for work all the time. Um, and I'd been sick, I had a sinus infection, and it's just... I was on antibiotics and it was not going well. Um, I just kept feeling more worse every day. Um, so one day it was a weekend I had off and I walked, I was in my bedroom and I walked across the hall to my office and I got short of breath. <clears throat> and I thought, oh great, here comes bronchitis. You know, Cause that happens sometimes. But it just kept getting worse and there were no signs of bronchitis whatsoever. Chest x-ray was normal, chest CT was normal, everything. Um, so you know, I was at work and I saw all my patients and then we would all meet in a conference room and just talk about everything. And as I sat there, I felt horrible. Like I was incredibly hot and it felt like I was gonna pass out and couldn't breathe well. So after we were done with our meeting, I was walking down the hall and one of my nurse friends was at the nurse's station. So I asked her if she could take my temperature. She's like, oh yeah, sure. And then she said, just for fun, let's put the pulse ox on. So I'm standing there and one of my colleagues walked up and the three of us are just standing there watching this thing. My temperature was completely normal. My oxygen saturation was 81%. No. And after a few seconds, it jumped to 83%. And then it went to 85 and then it went to 87 and we were all just standing there looking at it like, all right, come on, this trend, we should be at 89 by now. Like, and it just stayed at 87 and my temperature was done. It was still standing there with the pulse ox on and we're just all staring at it. Like, what is going on? So that's just kind of started everything. I went to see my PCP and they couldn't find anything. And by that time, my oxygen saturation was hundred percent. Mm -hmm. So they gave me a breathing treatment, sent me home, and this kept happening. Every day I get up, go to work, have trouble breathing. People said I was turning blue. Oh, wow. Send me home. So I'd, every day I'd go to my doctor's office and be like, you know, something needs to change. And they were doing all the routine tests, you know, chest x-rays, CTs, everything. Nothing was coming up but I was feeling horrible. It was getting worse and I was just tired all the time. I spent my entire day in bed pretty much. Um, got to the point that I kept food and bottles of Gatorade next to my bed so I didn't have to go down the steps. 
because by the time I got down the steps, I couldn't get back up. Um, so that kind of started the trend of nobody believing me and thinking, <clears throat> you know, it's all in your head, something along those lines. So I finally saw a pulmonologist and this guy was really smart and could figure out anything. Mm -hmm. And he kind of had a big ego about it. Like if anybody can figure this out, it's me. So I went to see him and he said, I have no idea. And he said, but I want to try to help you figure it out. So he did a test called a cardiopulmonary exercise test where you get on a bike and they hook up all of this stuff to you <clears throat> and then pedal and they monitor everything. And I didn't last very long. Um, I don't remember exactly how long it is. I think it was like three minutes or something. And when I was done, I almost passed out. Like there's three doctors in the room all watching me thinking I was going to code and they were just kind of freaked out, like just standing there staring. And I don't remember much. I remember being in the room and I remember the people in there and people talking to me, but I was so focused on, I can't breathe and I'm going to fall over. Um, so after I kind of recovered a little bit, he came and talked to me to give me the results. And he said, your lungs are fine. Your heart is fine. But you went into anaerobic metabolism almost immediately. And he said, you know, we need to do a few more tests, just kind of rule out some other stuff, but it appears to be something metabolic. So then that opened the doors to everything else. You know, I, they really checked out my heart. They checked out my brain, everything, and nothing was wrong. So you know, the possibility of a mitochondrial disease came up. And when I was in medical school, we spent like maybe half an hour on mitochondrial disease. Um, that was 2004 at the time. And I think we talked about three or four different things. And with everything, they said either this is incompatible with life or, you know, if the baby does live, they don't make it past the age of two. Now, so when they said mitochondrial disease, I was like, no, no, that's just not possible. I'm 27. This, you know, this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So then I started researching it more and realizing that there was this whole other world out there of all of these mitochondrial diseases. And as more tests were done and the more people I saw, little pieces kind of all fit into this puzzle of, yeah, maybe this could be mitochondrial disease. Mm -hmm. Did they ever do genetic testing? I did. I had two sets. Um, finally, when I got in to see Dr. Haas after three and a half years, we talked about everything and he started out with one. I don't remember exactly what it was. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was something with mitochondrial genes and then there was, I think, 101 nuclear genes as well. So we did that one first and that really didn't show anything. And then later I had um, whole exome sequencing and that did come up with a few things, but they were all the unknown significance. Mm -hmm. uh, based on all the descriptions of them, Dr. Haas thinks 
they probably are causing problems and contributing in some way because um, every single one of them fits with something that I have. Um, but nothing, I don't have anything in mitochondrial DNA. So I don't have the primary mitochondrial disease. Which I want to say before you continue on, that that happens very, at least for our listeners, that that happens very often. Um, I think that that's why mitochondrial diseases are um, underdiagnosed. That's why we don't hear about it very often, because if there isn't a test that says, yes, exactly, this is it, then majority of people don't, you'll get that as like a, a, I guess, pre-diagnosis like this is what it looks like but they can't give you this is exactly what you have so a lot a lot of people fall into this group of yes it's metabolic and yes it's probably a mitochondrial disease but we don't know so much about mito that that's where those people fall into so if you're listening um just because I mean, there's two, there's two different levels. There's the people that yes, hundred percent genetically, you can find the DNA of where it shows the metabolic disease. And then there's the other half of people, which is actually more than who gets diagnosed that get that. We think this is what it is because this is what the DNA is telling us, even though it's not conclusive. Yeah. And I also have a citrate synthase deficiency, which is one of the steps of the Krebs cycle. Um, and it is a rate limiting step. So if you can't make it through that step, then you can't do all of the rest. And then you go into anaerobic metabolism instead and less energy and you make lactic acid and go down that whole path. But it's very hard to explain that to people. Um, you know, most doctors I see don't understand mito at all. Um, and usually they try to sound smart. And when I say I have mitochondrial disease, they say, oh, which one? And I say, well, I don't have one of the ones that has a cool name or a few letters or anything. And they're like, oh, okay. So, you know, right off the bat, they don't believe me. Yeah. And since we've never been able to speak to a physician that actually has mito, how does, how does that feel? Even when you look back at like medical school and the different things I know, you know, I've gone into um, my son's dermatologist and, and, you know, they've said things like, Oh, we learned a little bit about that, but how does that, how does that feel to have a disease that, you know, a lot of the doctors and you being a physician just have no idea about. It's incredibly frustrating. Um, you know, and as an OBGYN, it's not something that I would have ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't present to their OBGYN with this weird thing. Um, so, you know, it's complete learning experience for me because I had to learn everything about it. Mm-hmm. And then you go to a doctor and some people don't know that I'm a doctor and I'll tell everybody. <laughs> so before that, most people just blow me off. They just ignore it. And, you know, it's really frustrating because you're trying to teach them what they need to know to take care of you. Mm-hmm. And some people listen and they're receptive and others just don't even care. Mm-hmm. See, I am naive, sorry, but I feel like, and, and 
as any doctor, it doesn't matter what field you're in. I, and especially I think for OBGYNs, they should be taught that because when I was pregnant with Angie, our first signs were our ultrasounds and talking to our OB and talking about all of the prenatal stuff that this, I mean, I'm, I hope that someday this, this does become a, a, an early test that you can do. I know that they're kind of working on that right now, but I, I never, I mean, I didn't even know this was a possibility to have a child with this disease. And I feel like with all the signs that we had early on, it should have been thought of, you know? I mean, I know you can't because you need the testing. And I, and I being on this end of the journey, I, I get it, but it's very frustrating to like have any doctor, regardless of what field you're in, only get, like you said, what, half a day or half an hour on this disease when it takes over so many people's lives. And just the simple fact that 90% of your energy comes from mitochondria. So why aren't we learning that? Why do doctors not have a focus on that? It's frustrating as like the naive mom over here that, you know, I just, I don't understand. (laughs) I think now there is a little more. Um, I don't have that kind of connection with a medical school to know exactly, but someone did tell me a story a couple years ago. Um, I don't even remember who it was, but there was a medical student that was with a doctor who was seeing someone with a possible mitochondrial disease. And this medical student was really interested in it. And he said, you know, we learned about this and I just think it's amazing and I want to learn more. So I think now they are doing somewhat of a better job, but I don't know exactly. You know, research is so young with mitochondrial disease as compared to something like diabetes or cancer or something that's been years and years. So I think as we learn more, then the education will get better. But I also think we need really good people who understand this to be able to teach it as yeah. a just someone who's teaching biochemistry was a little bit about it you know we need a bunch of people who can really cover the topic well yeah yeah I know too just in our association with the UMDF and Dr. Haas and Dr. Navio and you know just a lot of the top doctors that are specialists in this um you know, we need this kind of younger generation of doctors coming in and getting interested in this because I feel like many of the doctors in the field are, you know, close to retirement age. And I know when we go to Dr. Haas, I'm always worried, you know, he's going to say he's going to retire or something like that. It's like, you know, there's just not that many doctors that are going into this field. And so I'm hoping, you know, and I know that UMDF does a lot of work with um, medical schools and different things to try and, give nurses and different, you know, doctors that are just starting out, you know, credits and things and different stuff for mitochondrial research and um, classes and things. So I just hope that there's going to be a younger generation that kind of steps into the medical field and focuses on mitochondrial disease. Me too. And I have the same fear with Dr. Haas myself, that he's going to retire and then I'll just be completely stuck. Um, Because in my opinion, he's 
the best. Mm -hmm. I've seen a few people and some have been really good and some have been just horrible. But Dr. Haas impressed me from day one. Mm -hmm. um, and the good thing is, you know, that he has the fellowship. Mm -hmm. And actually the fellow that was with him the first time I saw him mm -hmm. now works in Philadelphia. Oh, that's good. Someone that I talked to had seen her. And I had mentioned Dr. Haas to this patient. And she said something, you know, to the doctor that's in Philadelphia. And that doctor said, yeah, of all of the people that I worked with during my fellowship, Dr. Haas was the best and I had the best time with him and I learned so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at least being in Pennsylvania, you know, it's a really long trip to get to San Diego. <laughs> you know, there's someone in Philadelphia who has worked with Dr. Haas. Mm -hmm. So I feel comfortable, you know, that I could possibly go see her at some point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So after you got your genetic testing, um, what happened next? Like, are you on like a mito cocktail at all or? I am. I'm on um, the B complex B100. I also take riboflavin, um, which kind of has multiple uses. Like I'm on it for mitochondrial disease, but I also have problems with migraines. And one time I saw Dr. Haas and I'd been having so many problems. And he said, increase that. I said, because that's really good for migraines too. Um, also ubiquinol, carnitine, vitamin C, vitamin D. Um, I tried creatine, but had a bad side effect. I had this horrible muscle pain and cramping. So we had to stop that one. Um, Dr. Haas doesn't know this, but I have been taking resveratrol. Supposedly good for mitochondria. And also the newest one I just started was PQQ. That they think helps you to make mitochondria. Oh. I tried NAC, but it caused so much nausea. Mm -hmm. Like I got to the point that I could barely eat and I was also barely drinking. Mm -hmm. That's not good. Um, I actually tried it for about a month and had the problems and stopped it. And then a month or two ago, I tried it again and had the same problems. So I think it's just a no-go for me. Mm -hmm. Now I know, um, like for Ashley and I, and we have quite a group of moms that um, all have children um, or have children that have passed with mitochondrial disease. Do you have any other adults that you're in contact with that actually have mito or? Um, there was someone, when I lived in Arizona, um, UMDF contacted me and said they had someone in Phoenix that disease and and I talked to them before and they knew I lived in Arizona so I actually talked to her for a while and then when I moved I lost touch so there was her and then actually when I was pregnant I had a c-section and I got there like 5 30 in the morning and this nurse came in all excited like running in she said oh my gosh you're here I've been waiting for you <laughs> and I was like what she said, I have mito. And she said, when I heard about you, I said, I need to take care of this patient. <laughs> it was really cool to have that. Yeah. I hardly ever meet anybody that has mito. And then, you know, I just walk into the hospital to have a baby. And there's this nurse that happens to have mito too. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. That yeah. is cool. 
cute. So how many kids do you have? I have one. And are they affected? Um, so far, she does not seem to be. She's four and a half. Um, and she's kind of just rocked everything. Um, she was holding her head up when she was an hour old. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Been ahead of schedule for everything, like all of the physical development, all of the language and speech and everything. So I'm hopeful that she's okay. Dr. Haas had said he thinks there's a pretty low chance that she would get it. But I know there's always that possibility. Well, that's good. That's good that she's not showing any signs. There's one thing that when I had Angie in the hospital, I, I'd never really, I mean, I held a newborn, but never really spent a lot of time with a newborn. And so my experience when I had Angie was just, she was just this little baby. Like, of course she can't hold herself up. But um, my sister recently had a baby and the difference between holding Angie and holding my niece was crazy. Like just, just, it was like night and day. And it, it gave me so many realizations to, if, if it were to happen again today, I feel like I would know more. I would, I would know that there was something wrong. But I didn't know. Like she was just a little baby, but now I realize that they're a little bit more sturdy than Angie was. <laughs> When it's hard being a first-time mom, like I have nieces and nephews and I help them obviously, but it wasn't there for everything. You know, it's just a brief half hour at a time. Um, and even being a physician, you know, it's not something that you really deal with. And you spend a few minutes with someone and their baby and, and that's it. And, you know, I only ever saw them for, two, three, four days after they were born. And then occasionally they'd come into the office again. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I didn't see them. So it was completely new for me too. And if I didn't have my dough, I don't think I ever would have looked for anything like that mm -hmm. because you just don't know. I mean, nobody knows about mito to begin with. And then when you're a new mom, you know, you're just so excited you have this baby, this little tiny baby, and you're trying to do everything, I mean, doing the dishes is even something that you don't even think about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just everything is so new and everything they do is exciting. And, you know, you're just like, oh, she's so cute. <laughs> now you don't look for certain things. Nobody's kind of trained to look for those things. No. Yeah. And I know I've mentioned before, but one of the things with Troy is definitely he couldn't hold his head up and I remember just going to my friends and like is this normal you know you know because you don't know and I'm like it's taking a long time and you know thankfully we had a pretty proactive pediatrician that was like all right let's let's look into this let's see see what's happening instead of just dismissing it um and saying oh well they all develop at their own rate and you know that kind of thing so yeah you definitely you have no idea <laughs> A couple babies in, maybe, but not that first one. Yeah, like you said, everybody does things at a different time. So it's not by this time, you know, all babies are going to be holding their head up or rolling over. It's kind of a range. And some fall outside that range, but they're still completely normal. Yeah, exactly. So what is um what is day-to-day -day life like right now? Is there anything that you have to do as, like, 
precautionary or do you know how much energy you can expend before getting exhausted? You know, some days are better than others. Um, I really try to not do anything that's going to require a lot of energy because I know I don't have it. Um, so I try to save it up for taking care of my daughter. You know, because obviously she's four and a half. She can't just walk around the house and cook lunch and all that stuff. <laughs> so I focus on taking care of her first. And then if I have energy to do other things, then I will. Um, I'm horrible at doing laundry because I don't have the energy to do three or four loads of laundry in a day. And I can't tell you how many loads of laundry I wash two or three times because I put it in the washer and by the time it's done and like too exhausted to get up and put it in the dryer. So I, kind of, I really have to focus on, I need to get this done. I need to have the energy for this. Um, which causes problems when you have a child because my daughter wants me to go outside and run around with her and, you know, spin in circles and jump and play and just be crazy. And I can't do that. And it's very hard as a mom to let your child down. Yeah. So that's tough. I do the same thing with laundry, but it's because I forget that I put it in the washer and I have to <laughs> wash it a few more times. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing when she said that. I thought, oh my gosh, I totally do that. It'll be late at night and I'm just exhausted from all the, the entire day and walking Troy around and it's just like, oh my gosh, it's nine o'clock. Oh, I put laundry in. Oh, well, we'll wash it again tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't even get that excuse. I, I literally walk in and I'm like, oh man, I forgot it again. <laughs> and then I smell it to see if, if yeah. it smells bad or not. <laughs> <laughs> Can this just go in the dryer or do we need to rewash? <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is hard it is different when you have um something like mito to compete with because it's true even something is what other people would see as easy isn't and it is really hard it's laborious it's it it's difficult to just walk into the laundry room or wherever you have your laundry at and and a lot of people don't realize how much energy it takes to squat down or bend over or pick up stuff and when you're tired I mean trying to put it at, at for our listeners that don't have Mito let's say you run a marathon and then we tell you okay as soon as that marathon is over you're gonna have to go and clean your house now do everything or or even just do like you said the laundry or the dishes putting those things away your muscles are tired all the energy has has been expended um you another way to think of it too is you need like electrolytes or something to give you your body that break to give it that extra boost and when you have mito that doesn't happen you can't just do that it's not as easy as drinking a gatorade or something like that so it is hard it's it's strenuous i don't know what my dog is doing <laughs> to fly or something he's trying to attack the popcorn machine at the moment i actually think he sees himself sorry <laughs> well i was gonna say too like you mentioned it's hard you know when you 
have a four-year-old and, you know, seeing her wanting you to do these different things and you just, you just can't do them. I know, obviously I have a child with Mido and so he wants to do certain things that, you know, he just gets tired and, um, you know, just walking at this point, he's 12 years old is tiring to him and standing up. Um, we just did one of our first PT sessions over Zoom, of course, um, with a new PT and just standing at the counter for him for about 10 minutes was just, it was just tiring and you feel bad, you know, you want them to be able to do, you know, all the things that they can do and you want to be able to go out and play with your daughter and run around, but it's just, you know, it's just, it's, you know, disheartening sometimes to experience that on both, in both situations. So Mido, Mido's hard. It's hard. Yeah. And I, I know when I do too much, um, I don't always feel it right away, but a few hours later, it's just like, oh, I regret doing that. And I can tell that I'm most likely in lactic acidosis and that sticks around for days usually. And I'm like, just actually last week, I overdid it on something. And for four or five days afterwards, I just felt horrible. And I can't tell you how much Gatorade I drank, you know, just to try to get myself hydrated at least. Mm -hmm. It's just tough. Like everything hurts. And I honestly have compression sleeves that cover my entire legs because the myopathic pain that I have, a lot of it is in my legs. Mm -hmm. And if I have a compression sleeve on, that at least helps a little. Um, I look like a complete idiot when I have all of them on together but you know I don't go out in public like that so I don't feel bad there but yeah it sucks well is there anything that you um want to tell our listeners or is there anything else that you wanted to talk about um really I think the hardest part of this is that I probably saw somewhere in the range of 25 to 30 doctors before I found Dr. Haas, um, including four other mitochondrial specialists. <clears throat> and, you know, if I, most of them thought I was faking it, making it up, and some psychiatric illness, it, oh, it's just stress, it's depression. Um, for me, I was a young female in the medical field. And when someone fits into that category and they have vague symptoms and they can't find anything on test, so many doctors just say, oh, you know, it's all in her head. Mm-hmm. She's making up, she's faking it, she wants attention, whatever. So if I hadn't been a physician, I probably would have accepted that. You know, after you hear it from so many people over and over and over again, you start to believe it. You know, and I actually said to my husband, you know, are they right? You know, am I just crazy? Mm-hmm. But he kept me going and, you know, being a physician, I thought I have to look into this further. You know, I can't just accept that nothing is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you have to have somebody to help motivate you and keep you going and kind of be your advocate and push for somebody different to see you. Um, and even of the four other mitochondrial specialists I saw, I mean, the first one I saw is a good doctor. 
Um, he's well known. I won't say names here because I don't want to just throw anybody under the bus. But when he did my muscle biopsy, he completely screwed it up. He didn't order the test he should have ordered. He ordered the wrong things. And then when everything came back as, oh, you know, this doesn't look mitochondrial, he just kicked me out. He was like, you know, you're not going to see me anymore, basically. Um, and then they even went to the extent that they lost the rest of my muscle. So when I finally got in with Dr. Haas, there was no muscle. They couldn't find it. Send so him a second muscle biopsy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's people that pretend to be mitochondrial specialists and they're not. I saw someone else um, who told me there is no way you have a mitochondrial disease. And how I wish I could go back to her today and say, oh, really? Because clearly I do. Um, so I think, you know, if you don't get the answer, you can't just give up. Mm-hmm. You have to keep going. And it's harder for adults than it is for children because most people think mito is a childhood disease. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to find someone who will see an adult. And it's hard for a lot of people to even comprehend that an adult can have a mitochondrial disease because they probably also learned in medical school, you know, it's fatal by the age of two whatever. Um, so I think you, know, you just have to keep going. You have to find a way to not accept that there's nothing wrong with you and go see somebody else. And it was actually, I had seen Bruce Cohen um, when he was at Cleveland clinic and I really liked him. And he started the whole process and, you know, we were getting into things and then his nurse for some reason wouldn't let me come back. And then when I moved to Arizona, my new doctor called him, you know, to try to get me in again. And that's when we found out he had moved. Um, so I reapplied to see him. And then my husband found Dr. Haas. So I applied to see him too. And I was talking with my pulmonologist at the time. And he said, if both of them give you an appointment, go see both of them. Mm-hmm. He said, this is going to take finding the right person. And I don't know if Dr. Cohen is it, and I don't know if Dr. Haas is it, but you have to try. Mm -hmm. I ended up not getting back in with Dr. Cohen, but then I saw Dr. Haas, and he turned out to be the right person. Mm -hmm. So if I hadn't tried and if I hadn't gone, then I'd still be just stuck. I'd be just floating around out there still trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I still don't think we have the whole answer. We kind of get pieces as we go along. And we add it to the mix. But without having all of your genes sequenced, you know, you're not going to know everything for sure. Right. Well, I think that's really good advice. And, you know, it goes for adults, like you said, most, we're only familiar with the pediatric side of it, but, you know, the parents have to be the advocates and have to say, no, there's something going on. So, you know, I'm so glad that we actually spoke to you if we have any listeners that are actually adults with Mito that, you know, to keep searching for that answer. And you may have to go to quite a few doctors. We hear that all the time. Um, But if you know that something is wrong, you have to keep advocating for yourself and get that, get the answers that you can get. Like you said, I mean, Troy doesn't have a specific genetic diagnosis either, but um, you have to just keep trying to figure out so that you can get the best treatment that you can for what you're experiencing. 
Yeah. And even when I got some results from Dr. Haas, we were talking about all of this. And he said, even though you have papers that say you have this, you're going to go see people and they won't believe you. He said, even though you can give them proof, they're still not going to believe you. And that definitely has happened. Um, and that alone can just beat you down. So I think even though it's hard, everybody needs to remember that what you have is real and there are going to be people who would be jerks and not take it seriously. But then you're going to find other people, <clears throat> excuse me, who are awesome and who will want to learn about it and want to help you and involve you in all the decision-making. Like I have doctors who, when I'm sick and I need antibiotics, they'll say, okay, you know the list of things you can't take. Which one should I give you? <laughs> you know, I give them a few that I can take and you know, then they are like, okay, you know what you're talking about. So you know, I'll give you this one. And then there are others who they don't care. You know, they don't ask. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking with us today. We, re we really appreciate being able to have you on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And for any listeners out there, you are listening to the Mido podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at mitopodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and uh, we're working on it, but we do have a YouTube as well. So again, any questions or comments, please um, send them to us. And thank you again, Stacey. We really appreciate you being on yeah, with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for this podcast you're doing too.